Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another New Books Network African Studies podcast. I'm your host, Jim Lance, and today I am very pleased to have as my guest, Nicholas Duncan, who has written a book called Tales from a Muzungu. It's published by Peace Corps Press. So tell me, firstly, a bit about how you came to write the book and what is the Peace Corps Press? And and thirdly, how can people get your book? Oh, hey, Jim. Uh, I'm glad to be part of the podcast. And uh, yep, it's Tales from Muzungu. Uh, So... I started writing the book. Um, I had a lot of friends ask me about my experience after two and a half years, and it just seemed they wanted very laconic, concise answers, uh, like, oh, how was it? And I'd say, very fun, and then that would be it. That was where their curiosity ended. And I thought that I had sort of some very interesting, um, fun stories that I could use to generalize what a Peace Corps experience was like. And I thought that this would uh, sensitize people to what a Peace Corps experience was like for an average volunteer. Um, And then on top of that, Peace Corps Writers is a nonprofit um, publishing firm that uh, helps uh, potential Peace Corps writers um, publish their memoirs. So did um, does. Did you have to submit a proposal or, or is it is any Peace Corps volunteer can use the, uh, this service for their memoirs and writing about their experience? Um, any volunteer can. But at the same time, I had to it was it had to be read and there was a proposal for it. Um, I had already written it and then started presenting it to various publishing houses. And mm-hmm. uh, I liked um, I like Peace Corps writers Um and they just seemed to understand the angle I was going for with the book. They like sort of my recalcitrant attitude, yet smart alecky ways. And so um, <laughs> they they picked it up, and I'm, I'm very glad that they did. And how can non-Peace Corps people, uh, readers and scholars and, and such, get your book? Because it's not available at a bookstore, is it? Not yet. So it's available on Barnes & Noble for Kindle. Mm-hmm. And it's available on Amazon for a uh, hard copy. And how much does it cost? It costs nine ninety nine on uh, Barnes and Noble and fourteen, I believe fourteen fifty or so on Amazon. Great. And are there plans to have it distributed uh, through wider channels, or for now, this people should go to Barnes and Noble and Amazon and place the order? Um, yeah, they should be going through those two um, those two routes. Okay, so it's Tales from a Mzungu, mm-hmm. published by First Peace Corps Writers, and Nicholas Duncan is the author. Well, I'm going to start off with a question. Um, why did you decide to join the Peace Corps? You started out, you were in a successful job, you had a, a great relationship with a person, and all of a sudden it seemed this book and the decision seemed to be out of the blue. I'm sure it wasn't spontaneous. Uh, It wasn't spontaneous, but um, I don't know if, sorry, one second. 
Um, it wasn't spontaneous. Um, I was sitting at my desk and I, I just said to myself that I didn't want to spend my early 20s um, in sort of a cubicle, as it were. It was a, it's a pretty successful company that I was working for. And um, there's also um, the fact that I also still have it, but I have a travel itch. So I wanted to do that, also help out um, in a foreign culture. And uh, the reason why, uh, and I was lucky enough to get Africa, because it's sort of like um, a monkey in a dartboard where you're placed. Um, I, I was lucky enough to get Africa. I have a family roots there. Uh, my dad's from uh, Cape Town, from South Africa originally. So um, that, that was another reason why I chose that area. But it was it was basically a, a crapshoot. You 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 did not. Could you express a preference for for a particular location, or is the Peace Corps finally, as you said, is it they just throw darts and there you go? Um, they claim it's not, but um, with everyone I spoke to, it seemed like um, you 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 got a choice in the region. Like so, you got a choice of Africa versus Asia versus um, versus Eastern Europe, South America, but um, they. After that, it just sort of seemed like a crapshoot. Like I had some volunteers who spoke French, yet they were placed in Uganda versus being placed in Rwanda. Um, I had certain friends who were openly gay and um, obviously were uh, alarmed being placed in Uganda. It felt like um, it's like take it or leave it mentality. But um, at the end of the day, we were all very happy with where we were placed. And had you you mentioned your dad uh, originally came from South Africa, Cape Town. Have you ever been to Africa before? I have. Um, I've been about four or five times, but only to South Africa, mm -hmm. which is like night and day of of Africa in terms of progress and uh, infrastructure. And um, yeah, it's completely different from sub-Saharan um, Eastern Africa. Mm -hmm. Well, I was, you know, you mentioned I was kind of struck by, and I'm just kind of uh, free associating here going through your book. You mentioned, uh, one, that you really didn't have a choice of where to go. But th to me, there seemed to be, and I'd like to have, maybe you could amplify upon this. It seemed to me that there was little real development logic in Peace Corps assignments. I think in one part of the book, you talk about a person who had significant engineering experience assigned to be a, a classroom teacher, whereas a person with significant teaching experience was assigned to a basically an engineering project. Uh, how, do, how do those kinds of decisions, how are they made in the Peace Corps? And what, do, what say do volunteers have in their assignments? Um, it seems like there's minimal say on where you get placed. Um, it, it's just that you have to look at your assignment and see if there's any possible uh, correlation to your background, if there's any connection, if you can find something that you're pretty um, – uh, what one of your strengths are and see how you can use that to help the situation that they're requesting. So, for example, I was working in a hospital or a part of a larger um, compound, but like the main focus was me for to work on the hospital. And I'm like, I have no health background or science background. And it's the same. It's the same thing with most volunteers is that it's sort of, yeah, you have this assignment, but take a look at your surroundings as well as this assignment and see what you can contribute to it. And if all all else fails because the nonprofit is not competent or they're corrupt or you just don't have a, a fit there, then um, then it would be uh, then they would try to assign. 
uh-huh. a different well, site. Well, tell me, yeah. Well, tell me what um, before you jo- before the pre pre departure time. What expectations did you have? A uh, about the Peace Corps. B about Uganda, and then C about yourself before and what and how did in what ways were your expectations met or not met or completely different from what you thought was going to happen? That is a good question. Um, I try to come in with very low expectations. Um, I had no clue um, how far I would be from another volunteer. Um, I I read like certain books um, beforehand, like what to expect before you go as a Peace Corps volunteer and whatever other reading material that they suggested that you read. I just tried to, I don't remember after like five or six years uh, since doing it or since signing up for it. But um, I even, I think I highlighted in the book, like you read your assignment or like what your goals are. And there's like three basic goals, but it's not really explaining where you're going in Uganda, um, what you're, what you're going to be doing for two and a half years or anything that would give you sort of a basis to, give you some idea of what you'll be doing. Um, I just basically came in. I knew that I was going to be in a pretty um, poverty-stricken country and that um, I I would probably get jaded from seeing it all the time, seeing I'm, like, born and raised in New York City and you deal with that in the subway, Um, not on that level of poverty, but um, when you see it all the time, it's sort of uh, you become jaded by it. But um, I think I have a pretty good um, sense of humor or um, ability to um, shake things off when the going gets rough. So that's the kind of mentality I came in with. Um, not try, I try to be more flexible than anything else. And what were your expectations and perceptions of the Peace Corps as an organization as you began the experience? Um, I, I was very nervous that um, it would be more on the – and I'm not um, – trying to um, criticize either political party here, but I thought it would be more on the liberal side, um, like where very hippie-ish, where you couldn't really, um, like there was no middle ground in terms of of discussion of how you might want to go about um, implementing development, where uh, I come from more of a business background and I'm not conservative or liberal, but it, it just seemed like it would be very um, – I, I was concerned to be a little very more um, utopia-oriented versus actually getting something uh, completed. Well, that, that, that raised – you just raised another question I was going to ask, and that is sort of the, the political orientations of your fellow volunteers. And what – I always assumed that Peace Corps people would be on the liberal side of, of things, but I got a sense from your book – it is an incredibly diverse range of people and uh, with an incredibly diverse range of political and ideological um, perspectives. Oh, that's completely true. Um, I mean, I had people from South Carolina that were very conservative or Nebraska conservative. And I also have and today they're still working for the U.S. government. They're pretty liberal. But yet we all just got along. We all knew um, what the end goal was for our our work in Uganda, um, which is which is great to see. And what were some of the motivations 
of your cohort who went with you to Uganda to join the Peace Corps? Were they similar to yours or were there differences in, mo- in motivation? Um, some were going over for master's programs. Um, even though they wanted to help out, there was um, incentive for them to, to do it for their master's um, so that they would get some scholarship money from it. Uh, oh, so, excuse me, so so um, schools actually saw this as a part of the of the, their studies for for uh, the master's degree, yeah. the Peace Corps experience. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know there was that connection. That's really good to know. Yeah. So there, like for one volunteer who was in my village um, and I, I speak about her briefly. Uh, she also gave a speech when I did um, uh, during our swearing in ceremony. She um, was an engineering volunteer and she she got her master's basically while over in Uganda. In in development or what? Uh, in engineering. So she in engineering. Yeah. Oh, okay. So okay. Yeah. She yeah. was working on like water projects and borehole. Um, um, that's a, a water pump. Um, yeah. So var- various engineering projects she she could get her hands on and like do research and surveys and do uh, data analysis about everything she was helping out in. And there were various volunteers who were doing that kind of stuff. Well, that's really good to know. I think people considering the Peace Corps, and especially students who want to go on, probably uh, should be more aware of this uh, this opportunity. So I'm glad we're talking about that. Yeah. It seems like like uh, a really, I've never really heard of that. And I think that's something that the Peace Corps probably should publicize more. Or is it, and schools as well. So I think it's I think there's a certain amount of schools that do it. I think your school needs to be part of the program. So like for example, uh-huh. like Michigan State, which is synonymous with the Peace Corps, because that's where Kennedy gave his um, big speech about um, trying to start this program up. Uh, I don't know if you know like the history of the Peace Corps, but that's where he um, spoke uh, to a large audience and said, uh, "What do you think about this idea going abroad?" and um, so, so Michigan State has a program, I believe. I believe that there's other, um, a lot of other schools. I think University of Denver has it as well. There's, there's a lot of programs throughout the country that have it. I just think that that's what needs to be in place for you to do your master's in the Peace Corps. And what was the reaction of your family and your your girlfriend when you sprung it on them that, hey, I'm going to do this, I'm leaving? <laughs> uh, well, I think you can uh, realize which one was happy for me versus which <laughs> one was kind of upset. Um, yeah, the girlfriend was not too happy. Um, but uh, my my mom and dad are immensely proud, and they still are, um, for what I, I did, um, and, and they encouraged me to do it. Mm-hmm. Girlfriend, well, I want girlfriend, not so girlfriend, much. Yeah, but she, she did, to her credit, come out and visit you. She did. She did come out and visit me. <laughs> um, well, I also interpreted your book as basically a book about authenticity. Uh, I thought that was one of the themes I teased out of your book: authenticity in regard to what is authentically African, authenticity in regard to what is authentically. Nick Duncan mm-hmm. and authenticity is into what in, in re, authenticity in regard to what is the Peace Corps and development. Yeah. And um, I was let's talk first about your perceptions of Africa, your preconceptions of Africa. And I might uh, I'm I was taken by one of your one of your uh, anecdotes um, when you were in Jinja. And I'm going to turn to that page where you wrote, Jinja is a small town located at the source of the Nile River. The town was filled with Mzungus who were in Jinja for a variety of reasons. 
extreme sports, missionary work, nonprofit work, overland trips through Africa, a little rest and relaxation, and etc. There was also a very high density of study abroad students. And here's where I uh, this this passage really struck me, and I wish you'd, I'd like to have you amplify upon of it, course. if you would. Yeah. A lot of these scholars believed that they were living a real African experience by working in the deep village while they lived in a house with every amenity they needed, hot water, electricity, and the Internet. It was noble of them to help children, women, or any meaningful cause, but you can't say you're having a real African experience if you wake up and have a choice of buying Cinnabons with an iced latte. And my question to you is, why not? <laughs> um, it's sort of like the, the haves versus have-nots. Um, where you're pulling into, um, and there, there's more, I believe, in that uh, passage as well, where I talk about yeah. people who had been living there for 10 years and just hadn't bothered even to learn the local language, where it's sort of that colonial feel-good um, story, where you're like, yeah, I'm helping out people in, in Africa, and then it's like, but I'm still having all the amenities that I would back home. And it, it just felt like a lot of these people would come in and then just leave, and it was for a story versus uh, – even though they, uh, their heart is in the right place, it just felt like there was this continuation of nonprofits um, creating this non-sustainable sort of um, atmosphere. Well, that that's another thing I wanted to talk to you about, but um – and let's 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 hold that thought, mm -hmm. okay? Um, because your book is also about what is development and what is effective development. Yeah. But that let's save that one for a few for a little bit. Yeah, down no worries. Um, authenticity in regard to Africans. Then, uh, what preconceptions did you have, um, and in what ways have your had your have your views of Africans? and their cultures, various cultures, changed as a result of your experience? I mean, the one thing that I, um, my perceptions coming in were, um, and, uh, and it actually has to do with the, the book cover, which I, I love, um, is that it just seems... I should just say, yeah. uh, the book cover is, is a, a picture of, a, of, I assume, a, a volunteer with a black backpack? Yeah. Or, yeah, it's walking... Walking into the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> so much potential. Um, so it's like it's sort of like a Banksy silhouette. And um, I, I wanted to escape the or move away from the acacia tree. And there was an article where it's like, can you see the difference? And it was like 50 different books from about Africa, all with acacia trees and like a sunset. And, right. and it seemed like books were falling into two different camps of either it's like, something terrible is happening in Africa, like a genocide or a political uprising, or someone's having their eat, pray, love moment in Africa. And I'm like, there's definitely something in the middle here. And with that being said about Africans, like I came in where it was one or the other versus like, it seemed like what I've taken away from at least Ugandans and Rwandans and Kenyans is everyone is very inventive like very innovative, like having to figure out how to work X amount of jobs, be a farmer, be a, a merchant. Everyone's a salesman or saleswoman. Um, like just that you just have to be uh, innovative in order to survive out there. And everyone's doing it every day. And everyone is 
very nice. Like I would say a majority, 90% of the people are very nice. Yeah, are you familiar with the um, website AfriGadget? No, I don't. You should, I'll send you the URL. It's it's a great website which just uh, basically provides examples of what you just said, the innovation, innovative nature and creative nature of Africans uh, in making do and cre- being very creative with basically uh, nothing. Mostly the, ref- the stuff we call garbage, they use in creative ways. And there's, for example, there's a kid who used plastic uh, water bottles to make a, a noise machine that would scare uh, lions away from ca- the cattle crawl. I mean, amazing stuff. So amazing I'll, I'll send stuff. you that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and to me, um, that kind of segues into the, the issue of development. For To me, um, I felt a tension in your, your book and in you between um, development, a development intervention through the Peace Corps and through you and African self-reliance. Um, so did you sense a conflict? And, and then if you did, how did you... How did you reconcile the contradictions involved? You were going there to help, and you could, and then you found Africans were inventive, innovative, and creative, and maybe really didn't need you. Uh, I mean, there is sort of a it's it's a weird sort of dance. I guess that's the analogy, where there or a balance. Um, but just throwing money at the problem, and it, and it seems like um, a lot of the nonprofit sector has fallen into this trap of just gala events and. Um, just throwing money at like certain issues versus long-term sustainable um, investment. Like for example, I, I know um, various nonprofits that actually give um, local residents um, investments or like give them loans, having to pay them back uh, and using certain techniques to see if they're going to be accountable for these loans. Like, for example, there's one nonprofit, I forget the name of it, that um, gave out uh, certain acacia trees or certain um, seedlings to uh, local villagers. And they would say, OK, we'll cut the loan by a certain percentage if you can maintain um, uh, these trees. And so that would make the, the locals or the Ugandans in this sense uh, be accountable for the trees and show that they're responsible for this. So helping out two ways for that um, that one Ugandan to actually make money to invest in their business and also uh, help out with the environment. So there's there's very good nonprofits out there that can help, but then there's some nonprofits that have kind of lost touch of what works for a region or a village and thinks a one-size-fits-all mentality works for the entire world and the development world. Hmm. Yeah, it's... That's what I've noticed, too, in my explorations of sort of the theory and practice of development. Um, staying with the authenticity theme, um, what did you learn about yourself? And what what were there anything? Was there anything about the experience in which you found yourself being disappointed by you? And were there things that you found yourself being? Wow, I never knew I could do that. Um, disappointed in myself. Yeah, a couple times with temper. Um, I think that I have a pretty calm demeanor. Um, but getting very frustrated or maybe not um, or being too calm sometimes when something did deserve um, more of a uh, alarm to the higher ups. 
that that's some of my disappointment. Um, I, I'd say like accomplishing some projects like the the tree planting, I was immensely proud of. Um, yeah, there, there's plenty of things that you're going to fail in in the Peace Corps and you're going to be disappointed. And there's certain projects that occur that you're immensely proud of yourself for. Yeah. Well, you've kind of touched upon another thing I'd like to talk about yeah. because to me, to me, your book also is about negotiation and and cross-cultural adaptation and communication, not only with Ugandans, but with a vast bureaucracy, but with the vast bureaucracy that is the Peace Corps and with your fellow volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so my question is, um, how how did you and and you you did touch upon it in terms of the thing one of the few things that disappointed you was the fact that you're anger angry, uh, but anger is also is a is often anger is expressed different ways in different cultures. So how did you learn to negotiate? all these very different scenarios and systems in a way that also that made you kept you sane, but also enabled you to achieve the things you did. Um, how did I negotiate with certain locals as well as, uh, as the Peace Corps, as well as with other volunteers? <laughs> um, I'll say this, uh, your fellow volunteers are a great uh, sounding off board. Um, you, you guys will vent to one another. Um, and I was also, I would say a sense of humor. You're going to have to just uh, smile and understand there's certain things you're not going to get, even though, uh, for example, I, I, sh- I should never have done it, but I, w- I took a lot of motorcycles there. Uh, yeah, that was a no-no. Why? That was a big no-no, wasn't that it? That was a big no-no. Uh, but I think like every, it was like one of those unwritten rules, like what mama don't know, don't hurt her even though you should never do it. Um, but like every single day I would get a boda from a certain spot to another spot. And like, it would be the same driver and they're like negotiating with me on price still. And I'm like, come on guys, we've done this every day. And it, it can get exhausting, but at the same time, you just have to have a sense of humor about it and, and, and realize that it's, it's part of the job that you signed up for. I'm pursuing this. I want to pursue this a bit more. I think mm-hmm. um, the way you communicated, and, and, I'm, and I, this one I'm definitely taking out of context, mm-hmm. but it was, a, it was it was a passage that that really struck me mm-hmm. even even more forcefully than the one I just read earlier. And this is when you were um, installing solar panels, but also you were um, trying to administer this community health program, which encouraged uh, men to get circumcised to reduce the transmission of HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. And you presented Ugandans with irrefutable evidence of the effectiveness of this policy and this procedure, but still you found them reluctant, if if not outright hostile to it. And this, this uh, quote really struck in my mind here. You you concluded that most verifiable truths had little effect on Ugandans. What do you mean by that? And you think, did you learn how to express truth in a way that, Ugandans would see as being truthful. It, it sort of was like, um, I don't know how to put it. Uh, it. It was sort of like trying to find the most influential people in the town or towns. And if you convinced them, then you could convince everybody else about, I mean, there's certain things that they've never seen before, or they've heard from a 
state-controlled newspaper or just it's just these facts have never been shown to them before or um, certain products have never been shown to them before. So they just have never thought about a different way. Um, And so for like circumcision, the stigma was that you would become because that's the the part of the book I think you're discussing. Um, Mm -hmm. The stigma was that you would become Muslim. And so everyone was like, I do not want to become Muslim. I am a, a Christian. And so I had to explain, like, very slowly, like, it's not about the health thing. It's not a manipulation tactic. It's all about just, it's just about health. It's not trying to convert you into being um, a Muslim. And, and so it's just like trying to calmly talk to them and reassure them that they could trust me um, on certain things that, that were brand new to them. So that was a negotiation in and, in and of itself. Well, how did you learn um, about the personnel in terms of who were the big men and women? How did you approach them? And how did you, for example, get convince them that circumcision was not going to and was not going to be seen as a, as a as a conversion to Islam, but was a health related issue? How did you get the big people on your side? Um, so there was a local school by me, um, which I discuss in the book. And so I would talk to them, and um, they were more forward-thinking, uh, so trying to convince kids to do it. And um, they were they were for it. The parents seemed to be for it. Um, so trying to get the next generation in that regard. Um, you're not going to help everyone. I think that's a big part of the book I try to emphasize, is that you're not going to save the world. You're just you're going to help out whoever wants to be helped out. And so you would go to the local councilmen. Um, you would just try to get the head honchos in the village to support your ideas. And if they did, then you would hope that people would follow suit if it was a good idea. This leads me to the the topic that you addressed, that you uh, brought up earlier, and that's the notion of development. Um, how how do you define it now, and how is the Peace Corps? How would you define it now after your Peace Corps experience, and how has that experience um, changed um, your view of what what agencies like the Peace Corps and nonprofits should do with their um, interventions in Africa? I mean, it's going to have to come down to a local level. Um, I know that there's. Nonprofits that work with the World Bank and they want to see results on a massive scale. And I think we all do. Um, I think that that would be ideal that malaria is eradicated. I, I think it would be ideal that um, AIDS is eradicated. It would be great. But there's so, so many different languages It'll, in Uganda alone. There's about 13 or so. I'm, I might be might be even more. And they have various stigmas for each region. And it needs to be, in my opinion, uh, more localized. And I think the Peace Corps does a good job with it. But I think a lot of the the bigger nonprofits um, try to do a one-size-fits-all because it's easier to do it um, than trying to, like, create various different uh, missions for each region or village, for that matter. Mm We've been talking in a pretty serious uh, light here. I want to stress, too, that your book is absolutely hilarious <laughs> in many, many parts. So, so, I mean, it's not just all serious 
philosophical discussions. And I really, really enjoyed your observations about your fellow volunteers. And this is one thing when I did my uh, dissertation research in Ghana, uh, I was really interested in in how the Peace Peace Corps volunteers I met uh, viewed life and behaved when they were in this setting. Um, Can you talk a bit about your, and you're in the book, you seem to be sort of both involved, but sort of a detached observer of what's going on. Um, what did you learn about human nature uh, as a result of your observations of, the, of your fellow volunteers and how people cope with a radically different cultural and envir- environmental experience? Um, I would say what I learned is, um, I guess off the top of my head, would be that a flexible attitude is going to help you enjoy um, at least developing countries a lot better or uh, the idea that uh, the spontaneous or um, the unknown is going to happen, which is basically what Peace Corps is, in my opinion, that a a lot of it is unknown um, and that you you should um, use a flexible attitude or a flexible uh, attitude or mindset uh, in order to um, basically accomplish everything you want in your two and a half years or two to four years, whatever your time is there uh, in order to get things done. Because if you are a little too uptight or unflexible, it's, it's not going to, it's not going to bode well. And that I found that most people are expats or volunteers with a good sense of humor are going to, are going to do better than people that, that don't. I was also struck, and this sort of confirms my op- observations, <laughs> by the, by the um, promiscuity of volunteers. And there's some fr- pretty funny passages where you kind of observe people behaving in ways that they probably would not behave back in Peoria or New York. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us some examples of uh, of some of the jokes that you – you're also a very big practical joker, it seems, from this book. Can you give, give us a, an example of some of the jokes you played on the volunteers and how they react – your fellow volunteers and how they reacted? Um, I mean, we, we pranked – we all pranked each other on the same, like, time. We also pranked, like, um, the Peace Corps staff. Like, uh, I don't think I brought it up in the book, but a lot of our Peace Corps staff was really big into flip charts, like, obsessed. And so what we did one day was we hit like a bunch of flip charts and they nearly canceled all the sessions because they're like, we don't know what to do. <laughs> and, and so it was like we fought my, my buddy and I Dustin, in the book. We finally said, like, we hit them like we, we were just joking. And they're like, you guys, you guys are too much. And so it, it was just little things like that, uh, little pranks to freshen it up every day. Harmless stuff. But um, yeah. Uh, we had sort of a carefree uh, mentality when uh, it came to pranks. Well, that was another thing that, again, another thing that struck me your book about basically there was this vast Peace Corps bureaucracy, but basically you were people on the spot. And like your example, motorcycles were strictly forbidden, but you managed to ride motorcycles (laughs) frequently. Yeah. So here, here you really were like, thrown into the deep end of the pool, but you had all these rules to obey. Uh, it just struck me as, as a, a system and an experience that must have been so full of contradiction and paradox. 
I'm just amazed that you could even function in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is what mama don't know, don't hurt her. Uh, it, it, seemed, it really, I mean, they, they would say, don't do this stuff. If they caught you, yes, you'd get reprimanded. But it's such a big country, and there's so few um, staff, there's such little staff that there's no way that they can monitor everybody. And and you're not doing it just to be recalcitrant or defy authority. You're doing it because you want to get to um, this one meeting that you have to go to with a deep bush or to or because that's the only possible way of doing it. So you have to break a couple rules every now and then. Right. And. How did the Ugandans feel when they saw you were breaking all these rules or they didn't know? They did not know. <laughs> I think I told my organization I'm not allowed to ride motorcycles. And I think they, I think the first thing they said to me is like, well, how will you get your job done? And I'm like, touche, touche. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the $64,000 question. I mean, it seemed you need to have a moto. Yeah. <laughs> you need to have a moto. So, um, yeah. Uh, how did the sorry? How did the Ugandans look at you? Because uh, most of the Peace Corps volunteers, although you do mention that that there was a there was a fairly wide spectrum in terms of ages, but most of them are are fairly young. And you're dealing with cultures and societies which, by and large, uh, respect, if not venerate, elders. So how how did you how did you negotiate sort of these these kinds of gaps to get some authority and respect? So you could affect, so you could do the things you had to do. Um, that's another great question, and that's true. That there is definitely a, a, a respect towards one's elders, especially um, with a lot of the older volunteers. It was just sort of given to them that they were very knowledgeable, and and they were. They were great volunteers, all the older, and I still keep in touch with them. Um, but the the thing is, is that. If you are able to come through a couple times at the very beginning, sort of set the tone for your service, um, they're going to listen to you a lot more. Um, and that's what I try to accomplish um, from the early – like I try to step back for the first couple months to see what everything uh, – what the needs were of the organization in the village. Um, but then after that, um, I just try to get the ball rolling on all these projects. Mm-hmm. And some were successful, so they started to listen to me or respect me pretty much. Did you have a beard? I did have a big beard. That helps a lot. Because when I was first in Ghana, I was clean shaven, and they called me small boy. Then I grew a beard, and attitudes changed. So. Okay. <laughs> so what did they become after small boy? I became I became a man. Okay. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was 35, but that's okay. <laughs> Awesome. What and you, uh, you don't have to answer this question, no, but go, go what what's what suggestions would you have to the Peace Corps as a whole for ways they could reform and make their organization more effective, both in terms of its development agenda and in terms of how it can prepare and train a cohort of volunteers who are who can maximize the experience and bring their talents and maximize their talents that they bring. Um. Well, I, I did sort of see that towards the end of my service, which is um, sort of a catch-22. You're like, I wish I had this, but I'm glad that they're doing it. Um, <laughs> but, for example, we used to – my training class was in one village learning seven to eight different languages. 
like being spread out throughout the country. When I was leaving, I was sort of the go-to contact, go-to person um, for the newest um, Peace Corps group. Like I had about two months left. And what I would do is uh, that they were out there uh, learning the local language in that region. So they've actually started moving like um, language groups to the region they'd be serving. So that was a big step. Um, On top of that, I would suggest um, making sure that the, the best way to have a Peace Corps volunteer satisfied with their service is setting them up with an organization that is um, accountable, that's actually um, doing stuff, isn't corrupt, and will provide good housing for a volunteer. That's, I think that right there um, will keep volunteers satisfied, just making sure that the nonprofit that they're being set up in is doing good work and providing good housing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's clear from the book that you – are an extremely resourceful, innovative, funny, clever guy who managed to overcome quite a number of significant obstacles and achieved quite a few really positive things in, in your two and a half years. And also, it's clear to me that you garnered the respect and genuine affection of your Ugandan uh, colleagues. So uh, kudos to you. Uh, and not many, not many people um, in any walk of life can can claim that. So that brings me to my, I guess, my final question. Okay. Um, it's been a few years since you've been uh, a Peace Corps volunteer. How did it, what are you doing now? How did the Peace Corps affect your life? And how, how has the Peace Corps experience um, kind of given you a perspective uh, and an approach to work that you probably wouldn't have had had you not become work and life had you probably not been a volunteer? Um, well, right now I'm working for a consulting firm. Um, Oliver Wyman. I don't know if you know the company, but it's sort of the rival to Bain Capital um, mm-hmm. and um, Boston Consulting. Um, so it's a great firm, um, great atmosphere. But I, I would say that what I've taken away from the Peace Corps more than anything else are intangible traits um, that I, I probably wouldn't have had um, before. So there's certain leadership aspects. Um, there's certain um, knowing which battles to fight, as well as knowing that if I'm late on a report, it's not the end of the world. I'm going to, I'm going to get it done. Uh, I guess it, it instills sort of a confidence that if I could do that for two and a half years, I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident that I can um, get things done in this, in this part of the world. And did being a volunteer help when you sought work back when you returned to the States? I would actually say no. Uh, I'd say a lot of volunteers struggled with um, finding work initially, and we were warned about that, uh, trying to explain to um, uh, a human resources department um, in, in any sort of uh, sector, whether it's government, a nonprofit, or uh, the business world, um, or the academic world, um, explaining what we did for two and a half years. And it, it seemed like a lot of us had to go through uh, – our, our old network that we had before we left or um, hoping to catch on with um, a company through um, attempt to perm sort of uh, position. Wow. That, that, that again is a surprising answer. Uh, I would have thought that a company or an, or an organization certainly 
a development organization would have would have seen this as a tremendous plus. Uh, it shows how resourceful you are, how you can uh, adapt and survive and thrive in difficult environments. So again, uh, I'm surprised and disappointed by by the attitude by that by what you just said. I was too. I was too, Jim, <laughs> for a little bit. But yeah, I finally latched on to um, a pretty good company and my intangible skills, I think, have set me apart from uh, some of my peers, actually. Mm-hmm. I know I know you're set and working and all that, so I don't want to ask this question, but I will. And I, I tell your boss that this is not your intention, but you ended the book nicely saying, would you do this again? And you said in a heartbeat. Is that is that still your attitude? I mean... I know realistically you're not going to, but you, would you still say I'd, I'd love to do this again? I, I, I mean, it was I would, um, and I mean, there I am an RPCV, which is a Return Peace Corps volunteer, so uh-huh. Uh-huh. I would actually, uh, unless some policy changes, um, have first crack at signing up again. And uh, uh-huh. I have pretty good um, recommendations from my old country director. On top of, I was on some leadership councils back in Uganda, so I, I mean, if I was in my 60s or so, and um, like I, I'm very, very much content in my life. I might do it. I might do it again. Mm-hmm. So, and would it be would it be likely you'd return to Uganda, or would you be, or would, would this again be the dartboard? I think it would be dartboardish. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, to me, again, just as an outsider, that that seems to be an area that could also. And a little reform, but that's a talk for another day. We can talk about that privately. So yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, I, I will share you some, share with you some of my experiences uh, doing research in Ghana. Okay. But Nick, thank you so much. We've been talking with Nicholas Duncan, who's written a really wonderful uh, memoir, cum travelogue, cum constructive observation of Peace Corps life. Uh, called Tales from Mount Muzungu. Uh, it's published by um, the Peace Corps uh, first, uh, sorry, a Peace Corps writer's book. It can be obtained either through uh, what Barnes & Noble Nook and Amazon Kindle. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a great read. And I think um, those of us uh, who have been in the Academy who can tend to look at Peace Corps, maybe with a jaundiced eye, would read this book and say, wait a minute, my eyes have been opened. Thank you so much, Nick, for your time. Uh, Thank you so much, Jim, for having me.